Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your gifts that you so richly pour on us. We thank you for the lives that you give us. We thank you for bringing us into your eternal and wonderful and life-giving kingdom through Jesus' death and resurrection. Father, we, t- we pray today as we hear this great story read out for us and as we reflect on it, Lord, we ask for your grace and mercy. Please work in us by your Spirit to um, bring your word to life in us and to help us to live in the light of it. We pray, Father, as we hear about the difference that it makes to belong to your kingdom uh, when we live in the kingdoms of this world. Lord, we pray for your spirit to help us to understand and to hear and to take in and apply. We ask that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Mary. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. (coughs) He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all other kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, As soon as they they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, 
Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces 
and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thanks, Meredith. Well, uh, as we've as I've said, we've been journeying through this book of Daniel over the last few weeks. Uh, it has been a great ride. And last week we saw, if you were here, we saw Nebuchadnezzar was blown away by this dream he had. Uh, so that's the kind of what leads us into this, where he was blown away. And he was not just blown away by this dream. If you are here last week, you remember, he was blown away by Daniel's ability to tell him not only what his dream meant, but what his dream was. <laughs> he had this, uh, God revealed that to him. And it was so humbling. Uh, and if you have uh, your Bibles open there, I'll be flicking between chapter 2 and 3 a little bit at the start here. Uh, he finishes chapter 2. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar finishes chapter 2 in total awe. Uh, he finishes on his knees before Daniel. He's totally uh, humbled at that point. But as we go into this story, the one that we've just heard read out, as we go into chapter 3, it seems like... What happened at the end of chapter 2, and then Nebuchadnezzar being humbled and recognising who God was, it seems like he's forgotten his theology lesson. And we're told in verse 1, right at the start of chapter 3, that he makes an idol, an image of gold. And not just any image, this huge, towering image. Uh, they reckon about 30 metres high, about 9 storeys high. Uh, hard to kind of get your head around how huge it was. Uh, I'm not sure what was on it. We're not told what was on it, but probably an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself or one of the Babylonian gods um, carved into this massive pillar. Um, now, what's Nebuchadnezzar doing here? Uh, he's had this dream. If you remember the dream from last week in chapter 2, he had the dream of a statue, a, a, a statue that had been set up uh, if you remember this great dream that he had, a statue made of all different metals, the head of gold, he was the head of gold, and all the different metals afterwards. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was at the top of it, he was the head of gold, but human power is ultimately futile when it's set up against God. As, as impressive as that statue seemed, if you were there, if you remember we went through that, the statue of human achievement, human kingdoms, human pride, has clay feet, uh, and if you remember the image of this stone that's not cut by human hands, coming and demolishing the statue, grinding it to dust, and then this little stone grows to a huge mountain and covers the whole earth. Okay, so that's the kind of where we're, we're heading into this chapter. We've just heard about this dream he's had of a statue, and then what do you get as soon as you turn into chapter 3? Nebuchadnezzar sets up his own statue. But did you notice what's going on there? Notice what happens at the start? He sets up his stone statue, and it's all made of gold. It's not made of all different metals. It's all made of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was the gold head of the statue of his dream, but he sets up his own statue, and it's all gold. It's sort of as if Nebuchadnezzar is defying the dream that he's had. It's almost as if he's setting up his own statue in opposition to this dream that God gave him. 
And this, the statue Nebuchadnezzar sets up is not going to have clay feet, right? And so it's not just this statue that represents Nebuchadnezzar's strength and power. We read in verse 5, it's an object of worship. It's an idol. Um, verse 5 says, As soon as you hear the music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold. So, we've got this statue of Nebuchadnezzar, this idol that's been set up. As we saw in the first week, as we started looking at this book of Daniel, the whole book is about God's people living in exile in Babylon. God's people who belong to God's kingdom, but are living in a land that does not recognize God, that does not acknowledge Him or, or honor Him as He ought to, to be honored. And this chapter, chapter 3 in particular, focuses in on this key issue for exiles in Babylon. This key issue, the issue of idolatry. What it looks like to worship the one true God in a culture that worships idols. It can be easy, I think, on one level, to distance ourselves from what's going on in the chapter we have read out. Right? It can sort of be easy. We can kind of think of worshipping idols as something that primitive cultures do, uh, not our kind of advanced Western cultures. But we don't have to have literal. We don't have literal statues, right, that we go down to. Uh, but idolatry in the Bible it goes much deeper than that. Um, the great, and it doesn't need a physical statue. The great reformer John Calvin said famously that the human heart is a factory of idols. The human heart is a factory of idols. Uh, the New Testament uses this idea to talk about of idolatry, to talk about the core problem that lies in all of our human hearts. So we saw that when we went to the book of Romans, right at the start of Romans. Paul, the apostle Paul, talks about idolatry as exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshipping created things rather than the Creator. Idolatry takes good things, it takes the good things of this world and turns them into God things, turns them into ultimate things. Uh, have you ever been greedy? Uh, in another place, Paul writes that greed is idolatry. Have you ever put anything in God's place, in the place that God rightly deserves and, and owns? Your family, your children, your career, your desire for power and control, your desire for pleasure, your desire for companionship, your desire for comfort, your desire for financial security. We could go on and on, right? Uh, all good things, good gifts from God, that we can so easily turn into ultimate things. Things that we must have at all costs. Things that we, in the end, give God's place to. And Daniel, so Daniel 3, what I want us to sort of just reflect on as we start our journey through this chapter is, it's not just an ancient story about some backward ancients worshipping a statue. It has incredibly relevant for us today. Okay, again, if, if you have the story open in front of you, that would be really helpful. 
Um, and there's an outline in the handout too to just help keep up for, to where we're up to. Uh, did, did you notice a few things about the idolatry that's pictured here in this opening scene? There's a phrase that gets said over and over again, and it's a good way to kind of get behind what's driving an author in the Bible is to sort of pick up the phrases that get repeated over and over again. And maybe you pick this up as it was read out. Um, in verse 2, you come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar that he had set up. I'll just fly through these. Probably won't be able to keep up with them on the screen because there's lots of them. Um, if you, you can see them if you've got your Bibles open in front of you. Verse 5, fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The image, verse 7, the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 12, the astrologers come and um, tell on the three friends. Uh, they say, neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar says to himself, down in verse 14 and 15, the image I have set up, the image I have made. It's as if the author wants us to pick up that this idol, this image, was set up by Nebuchadnezzar. was made by Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it's obvious on one level, right? Of course, you know, what's he going on about? Of course this statue is made by Nebuchadnezzar. But repeating it like this, Focusing on that this statue is something that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, has made. It's a deliberate kind of contrast. It's, and again, uh, looking back to chapter 2, it's a deliberate contrast to what we saw in chapter 2. Especially in Daniel's prayer. Uh, back in chapter 2, you can flick back there in your Bibles. In verse 20, Daniel prays, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up or sets up others. This God is the one who deposes and sets up kings. He's the one who does it. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of this world. And we saw in the dream last week, he had promised to set up his Eternal kingdom. He would do it. And then you get Nebuchadnezzar himself attempting to set up his own statue, to set up his own idol. And you notice the other thing that gets repeated in these opening scenes of chapter 3, and, and uh, that was read out so well, um, but it's a bit of a tongue twister as you read through, isn't it? Because it repeats over and over again the names of who the, all the people who came, uh, the long list of people, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other officials. And then later on you get this repeated list of all the instruments that get played at this great ceremony where everyone's coming, all these people are coming, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp. And on one level that's meant to open, sort of impress us, right? All of these people from all around, all the important people from the whole empire of Babylon, the greatest empire in the world, uh, pulling out all the stops for this great ceremony. All the instruments are being played. All the, all the pomp and ceremony, this incredible power display of power. Nebuchadnezzar has built an empire and he's using this idol, this image he's set up as a kind of unifying force and his idol. 
Bow down to it, everyone, all of you. Bow down or be killed. It's terrifying and it's impressive, but there's something else going on here too. Underneath all the pomp and the power of this scene, of all these people gathering around the idol, the way the story is written now, it has a kind of sense of satire about it. There's a kind of mockery in it, this re- repetition of all these people. Uh, this repeated long list of everyone who comes, all the instruments that get played, and then the automatic response of everyone bowing down the moment the music is played. It's, it's like they're robots kind of mechanically doing going through the motions, and it's tragic, it's terrifying, but we're also meant to see how silly it is, too, how kind of ridiculous it is. How ridiculous this idol worship is. I, I was trying to think of a kind of current example. The best I could think of was um, when you see regimes like the North Korean regime and they put on these huge military displays, right? Everyone marching perfectly in time, pulling out all the stops, everyone smiling on cue, bowing down to the dear leader. It's tragic and terrifying, but it's also ridiculous, right? In, you know, it's you know, you know, all in one. It's all of those all in one. So the story goes on from there. We find out in verse 8. Uh, in verse 8, some astrologers go to the king uh, and tell on these three friends. It's the same guys that appear in chapter 2. If you remember, these astrologers are the guys that Daniel has just saved their life. Right? They, Daniel saved their life, uh, but they kind of resent him in a way, it appears. Uh, he showed them up how he's unmasked, how powerless they really were. So it's possible that they've just been building resentment against Daniel and his three friends, these Jewish exiles who have come and put in these high positions. And they see this opportunity. Uh, they notice when everyone else gets summoned, the whole, everyone's around this central, huge, enormous, golden um, statue, this tribute to the wealth and might of Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest emperor, the greatest king in the whole world. And they see everyone bowing, everyone gets on their knees, and these astrologers, out of the corner of their eye, notice something odd happening over there. These three young, they're still young, they might even just be teenagers still, these three young men, these three young exiles, Stay standing. They tell the ta- they tell them. They tell the king in verse twelve. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Incredible, isn't it? I mean, think about the pressure of that moment for those three young men to stay standing. Well, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar's rage before. He, like that, uh, ordered the execution of all his wise men last week. But his rage flares up again here in verse 13. That's often the way uh, when our idols get threatened. Uh, it happens all the time. It can happen to us personally too, though, can it? Uh, when that thing, that relationship, that outcome, that goal that we're driving towards, that thing that has captured our hearts and that we must have at all costs, when it gets threatened, we easily respond with anger, right? It can work in reverse too. 
it can be a really helpful way to unmask those things that perhaps are idols for us. When do you find this kind of uncontrollable rage welling up in you? It's probably a hint that there may be some kind of idol lying behind it that needs exposing and replacing with the true God of grace. Anyway, in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar has his idol threatened and he goes into a rage. He hauls these upstarts before him. And even in, even in his rage, though, uh, you know, he still gives them a second chance. He probably doesn't trust the... Um, he doesn't quite trust his astrologers. And so these three, if you remember from chapter 1, these three were outstanding young men. Right? They, were, you know, they were kind of top, top class, and he doesn't really want to lose them. They're outstanding public servants. So he asks them in verse 14, is it true, he calls them before himself, he says, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? You've got one more chance, he says to them. I, but I want to see you do it. If you and, and look, if you fall in line, if you drop down with everyone else, good. But you know what's going to happen if you don't. Straight into the furnace for you. Uh, and then at the end of verse 15 comes the real heart of what is going on here. See, in setting up this idol, Nebuchadnezzar is setting himself up against God. And he says to these guys at the end of this, Then what God? Then what God is able to save you from my hands? Well, then you get this wonderful kind of centre of the whole story from verse 16. These three friends standing before the king have probably got soldiers around them with spears pointed at them. My imagination perhaps, but they're probably surrounded by imperial might, surrounded by signs of the power and might of Nebuchadnezzar in front of the most powerful man in the world. And all he's asking, right, all he's asking is one little thing. One little thing. It's not a big deal. Look, everyone else is doing it, right? You've got, there are other exiles who are here from Jerusalem. They don't have a problem with it. They're bowing down to it. Um, you, and look, I don't even mind that you worship your Jewish God, your, Israel, your Yahweh. You can get back to worship, you're worshiping Him later. But you must bow down and worship the image that I have set up. And you notice how they respond. I think this is just stunning, right? They respond with this incredible mixture of calmness and strength. See, these guys, they're not troublemakers. Um, they, they are the best public servants Nebuchadnezzar's got. They're not looking for a fight. They're not just out to, um, to pick a fight with people. But... When the choice needs to be made between the creature and the creator, between Nebuchadnezzar and God, it's no contest. Verse 16, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Oh, what a thing to say. And you can kind of at this point, right, you feel Nebuchadnezzar's rage rising even more. Of course you need to defend yourselves. That's what you're brought here for. 
That's what I summoned you for. How dare you, and look, how dare you stay so calm? You should be trembling before me and before my might and power. Don't you realise what power I have over you? King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Uh, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These guys are facing unimaginable pressure to conform. It's not just from everyone else around them, it's from the full might of the the empire, <laughs> the full might of the state, forcing itself down upon them. Unbelievable pressure. We've already seen the kind of links between chapter 2 and this chapter, right? In Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, it also it feeds into this. It, it, it's also key to seeing how these three, why is that these three, three friends can respond in this way? What's going on for them? How can they respond with such cool strength in the face of unbelievable pressure? I remember when, um, before we moved down here, we split up in the hills, and we first came down here, I think I've mentioned this before, um, I, when, the first time I saw the bluff, I was a bit awed by it. Um, I thought it was just this magnificent, solid thing, and it is, and I've reflected before on that. Um, and it's also, when you're trying to coax a two-year-old to climb up it, it's also kind of overwhelming, right? Um, but just imagine, right, just imagine you've just gone on a trip to Nepal, and you've just finished climbing Everest, right? The greatest mountain in the world. You're hardly going to be overawed by a little pimple like the bluff, eh, when you come back home. Uh, that's the kind of contrast you get in chapter 2, right? This impressive statue, ground to nothing, utterly overwhelmed by the mountain of God's kingdom that grows and fills the earth and makes this mountain would make even Everest seem like nothing. See, on their own, in their own strength, the pressure would have been too much for these guys. But with chapter 2 in their minds, with this incredible mountain of God's kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God, the little blip in front of them was exposed for who he truly was. For all his pomp, all his arrogance, all his pride, all his power, Nebuchadnezzar was just another man, and his idol was wrong and tragic, and it was even laughable. And do you see what it does for these three faithful Israelites? It means that they trust God simply for who he is, not for what they can get out of him. They trust him. They believe that he is able to deliver them. And they even believe that he will deliver them. They're confident that he will. But the, did, did you pick this up in verse 18? This wonderful verse. Even if he doesn't, 
we still won't bow down. Now I find this both inspiring but very challenging, right? We can often trust God with conditions. I'll trust you, but I'm counting on you to deliver for me. I can't go through life if you don't give me fill in the blanks. These friends trust and worship and obey God simply for who he is. Even if they get nothing for it, even if it leads them to their own death. Well, the story all plays out from there, doesn't it? From verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury. He thought he was furious before, he's even more so now. And he orders his furnace to be heated to the maximum level, um, as hot as possible. It's so hot you get this um, kind of ridiculous scene where the, the, the strong guards carrying these guys, as they get near the furnace, they themselves perish in the fire when they throw these guys in. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are tied up, they're thrown in, all their clothes, notice how it lists all their clothing still on them, uh, all that stuff that would have been up in flames in a second. And the great king Nebuchadnezzar has won, right? What God can save them from him now? But then all the pride in him, you can kind of picture it, can't you? All his smugness and satisfaction and power and pride suddenly drains from his face. He leaps to his feet, he kind of can't believe his eyes, he stares in amazement. He threw three men into the fire who would be instantly incinerated. But instead of seeing three charred bodies drop to the bottom of the furnace, he sees, in verse 25, he sees four men walking around, all their clothes on, they're uh, unbound, so they've been unshackled and unharmed, and we're told the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Well, Nebuchadnezzar knows that something is going on. (laughs) In fear and amazement, he goes to the opening, as close as he can get, without being incinerated, and cries out, he yells out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they come out, everyone's around them, all these, all the leaders of the whole empire are there to see it, and they are totally unharmed. Don't you love that little phrase? Not even a whiff of smoke on them. <clears throat> there was no smell of fire on them. Not, nor was a hair, not a hair of their heads wasn't seen, on their heads wasn't singed. Uh, and as you read on, you see that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that he was wrong. Right? He praises their God, who sent this fourth mysterious figure, this angel, to rescue them. And he realizes that they were right to defy him. Uh, to pick it up though towards the end, he still can't get past his um, kind of authoritarian, <laughs> dictatorial kind of ways. Uh, and he turns into a law that anyone who says bad about this God will be uh, cut into pieces. He's sort of true to character for old Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but he recognizes the key thing in verse 29. Remember before he's asked them, what God will be able to save you from my hands? Verse 29. Total reversal. No other God 
can save you in this way. Friends, this is a story about the God who saves. It's a story about the seemingly overwhelming power of the idols of this age, of this world. About the pressure faced by God's people in exile. But it's a story that exposes these idols, these powers, these rulers. It exposes them for what they really are. When they set themselves up against the one true and living God. They are tragic and terrible and laughable. And ultimately they are powerless when they're placed next to the mountain of God's kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. Now for us as Christians, Daniel 3 is not actually primarily, primarily first and foremost about us. The faithfulness of these three Israelites, they showed this faithfulness, incredible faithfulness and courage on one day. They weren't perfect, but their faithfulness in this moment points towards the perfectly faithful, true Israelites. The one who lived a perfect life trusting his heavenly Father. The one who in Matthew 4, when he gets led into the, into the desert to be tempted, is tempted by the devil who says, all these kingdoms I will give you if you just fall down and worship me. And the one who replies, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This Daniel 3 points towards the one who went to the ultimate furnace of the judgment of God for us. The one who has already won for us eternal and ultimate salvation from our great enemies. Jesus has already rescued us, friends. He's rescued us from the world's true, deep, great, fierce, ferocious, the, most, the worst enemies. From sin and from the devil and even from death itself. We are not waiting for his rescue of us. It has already been won for us in Christ. And now, as we saw in Romans, nothing can separate us from his love. But we are waiting, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, or last week, we are waiting for that salvation to be completely known. Uh, we live in, remember from last week, this now and not yet kingdom of God. And so with all that in mind, with, with our eyes on Jesus, the, the true faithful Israelite uh, who saves us from the fiery furnace or from our great enemies. Daniel 3 does spur us on. But how much more richly even than those exiles who would have first read this. This would have been incredibly encouraging for exiles who are living in Babylon. Unbelievably encouraging. But how much more richly for us, friends, we can say not only that the God we serve is able to save us, but that he has saved us. He has already accomplished his ultimate and great victory in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And we will still face the idols of this world, and at times we will face the fury of those who set them up when we refuse to bow down to them. 
Daniel 3 doesn't guarantee salvation from the flames. doesn't guarantee that. It would be wrong to read it that way. It does guarantee that there is a God who saves. And as those who have seen Jesus, we can say our eyes have seen his salvation. We have already been saved. What can man do to us with all his pomp and power and threats and idols? That reality sustains brothers and sisters across the world who do, in a very tangible and real way, face Nebuchadnezzar daily, insisting that they bow the knee or die. One organisation estimates between 1990 and 2001, a little bit out of date, but fairly recent, uh, there were 160,000 Christians martyred every year. Each year. I didn't do the math about how many per day that is, but maybe you can figure it out. Astounding. 160,000. A recent estimate from Open Doors says that 100 million Christians are actively persecuted today for their faith in Christ. Uh, if you had the privilege of being at Steve's place on Monday night, Steve Hodges' home group, we had... Um, a visitor, Victor, who is a, who's a pastor in Pakistan, a church planter over there. Uh, he told us stories of people he knew who uh, it was um, really sobering to hear, wasn't it? People he knew, people he loved and knew who had been brutally murdered for confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. But it's not just the persecuted churches, that reality is what fires the persecuted church. They face particular kinds of idols, but our culture has its own idols. And there are times when God's people are told to worship or face the consequences, even in our society. Turn a blind eye to this dodgy business deal. Worship at the altar of the economy. Bow down to the idol of individualism, of personal fulfilment, In our particular moments, the story of gender and sexuality that has captured our culture's imagination, bow down and face the consequences. Do you notice what the Gospel does? And we see this in this story, don't we? The Gospel frees us from acting self-defensively. We don't need to defend ourselves before you, O Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and again, we don't we don't need to come respond with a kind of marquee superiority, uh, cutting ourselves off. We saw this in the first week. Daniel and his friends in exile, they don't cut themselves off. They engage, they, they, uh, they seek the good of the city that they are living in. Uh, in a way, um, and, and at the end of this story, you notice the friends, they go back to serving the state. Uh, they go back into service of their... Culture. In a way, we can have it both ways. Happily engaged in the good of this place, all the while confident that the God of Daniel is our God. And for us, who in Jesus has already saved us from our greatest foe and guarantees us a hope through the flames, through death, the hope of his eternal kingdom. And so if and when we face the fury of refusing to bow the knee, we can say, friends, if you throw us in the fire, 
Our God has already saved us, actually, from sin and death. And our God has already saved us. And what's more, He can save us from you. But even if not, we serve Him simply for who He is. And we will not go. Let's pray. Uh, Father, there's so much in this, uh, this story in Daniel chapter 3 uh, that is gripping for us. We thank you for the courage of these three young men. Uh, we thank you for the way in which the, the way they knew who you were and your greatness and your kingdom enabled them to see the reality of the world around them, enabled them to see what a small and little thing the idols and power and Nebuchadnezzar was. Uh, Father, we pray for us as those who have seen your great salvation, who have experienced uh, your ultimate rescue, uh, who have an eternal guarantee of life in your amazing and overwhelming and wonderful kingdom. Father, we pray for us. Please encourage our hearts today as we in our own way, live in exile uh, in this world, but not of it. Give us the wisdom that we need not to act self-defensively or proudly or um, anything like that, not to kind of think we're better than anyone else. But at the same time, give us, we pray, the wisdom that we need and the courage that we need. Uh, help us fill, fill our vision, we pray, with who you are, what you have done, your great kingdom, so that when... When and if the time comes for us, uh, when we are asked to bow, uh, that we will say, we don't need to defend ourselves, but we will not bow down. Lord, strengthen us for that, we pray. And uh, we, we pray that for your glory, so that your gospel may go out in this whole world. And we long for the day when your kingdom will come and spread over the earth. And all that is evil, every all suffering and sickness and death, every power that's set up against you will be brought to nothing. So Lord, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.